behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to our January 2019 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation and a lively debate. My first guest is Dr. Paul Merrick, professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia. He's here to talk about his article, Point, Should the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines Be Retired? Yes. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. My next guest to argue the opposite side is Dr. Mitchell Levy, Professor of Medicine and the Chief of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the Warren Alpert School of Medicine at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. He will be arguing the counterpoint, should the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines be retired? No. So, Mitchell, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So let's, you know, any debate should start at least with a, a background in case some of our listeners are not familiar with uh, the surviving sepsis campaign and then the guidelines. Um, so let's start with that before we kind of go into the pro-con, um, at least let's give an overview of, of what they are, um, and that might help then frame, you know, where the discussion is going to go in the back and forth here. Um, so at least we know everybody's on the same page. So um, wherever we'd like to begin. Uh, sure. I, uh, Kyle, I think uh, Paul and I agreed that I probably should do a brief introduction of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and rather than the guidelines, and I'm happy to do that. Um, <clears throat> so very briefly, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign was started as a collaboration uh, between the Society of Critical Care Medicine, the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, and at that time, the International Sepsis Forum uh, in 2002 as a call to action to reduce mortality from sepsis. In 2008, the ISF withdrew and the Surviving Sepsis Campaign remained a partnership between the two critical care societies. Uh, initially, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign was funded by uh, industry money uh, by um, primarily Eli Lilly, but also by Baxter Life Edwards Life Sciences, and uh, in addition to funding from the critical care societies. After 2006, uh, no industry funding was received of any kind, and since that time by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, and primarily has been really supported by grants from uh, uh, the Philanthropic Foundation, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation in Palo Alto, California. And so the other point I should make is, uh, although the title of our point counterpoint is should the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines be retired, I think what you're going to hear us talk about over the next little while is um, both guidelines and the bundle. So I should probably say a little bit about both. The surviving sepsis campaign guidelines were first part of the initiative and uh, intention of the surviving sepsis campaign was produced was to produce evidence-based guidelines, and uh, they were initially produced in 2004, and they have been uh, reiterate have been revisited with iterations produced in uh, 2008, 2012, and most recently 2016, and uh, those have become um, um, published in both Critical Care Medicine, the home journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and the uh, Intensive Care Medicine, the home journal of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. Uh, out of the guideline process, in an attempt to bring the guidelines to the bedside, sepsis bundles were developed uh, in partnership with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Uh, that was first done in 2004, I believe, and the bundles themselves after um, working with the IHI were released in 2005. The first bundles were the six and 24 hour bundles. And uh, over the next eight years, the campaign um, introduced networks across the world and published the results in 2010 and 2015. And then in 2015, the six and 24 hour bundles were revised to the three and six hour bundles. And over the next uh, four, three years, uh, work was done across the globe and recently published uh, with the three and six hour bundle. And then in 2018, the uh, three and six hour bundles were further revised into an hour one bundle, and that was published in January of this year. And I think that brings us, should provide the information we need to uh, move into the debate. Okay, so then under the envelope, or the umbrella, if you will, of a surviving sepsis campaign, we had guidelines that came from uh, 
multiple societies coming together with industry support, then that shifted and changed. And, and then through that process, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign also gave us then these bundles that you had talked about. So there's, the two are tied together, but are actually then separate at the same time. Is that a, is that a way to frame our minds our, for our listeners? That's correct. And they're published separately, although the data published uh, on the surviving sepsis out of the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines and the surviving sepsis campaign are the data that have shown the impact of implementing the bundles on, in clinical practice and on outcomes. Okay, so with that background, um, Paul, you, 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 get the, you get the first crack uh, for the point of retiring uh, the surviving sepsis uh, campaign guidelines. So please, have at it. Yes, so, you know, firstly, I mean, I think this whole debate started with the 2018 iteration in which everything was condensed down to a one-hour bundle, and I think that's where the most discomfort came. But I think what I'm going to say really applies to all the bundles. So I think, you know, we're in the post-truth era with half-truths and alternative facts. So, <laughs> so what I'm going to do is go through, you know, point by point where I think uh, surviving sepsis has, you know, provided half-truths. So the first is an association, you know, we talk about evidence-based. I mean, that, you know, Mitchell, Mitchell has, you know, iterated that, that the guidelines are evidence-based, and I would say that actually they're not evidence-based. So firstly, you know, what society, what surviving sepsis has done is support, to do support the guidelines has claimed that there's improved outcomes. So, you know, we need to look at that. And firstly, an association between two variables does not necessarily imply causation. Even the best analytic techniques, correlation is not the same as causation. And when these associations have been tested in randomized controlled trials, they have overwhelmingly proven to be false. So that's the first point. Secondly, um, surviving sepsis selectively reports only those studies which are positive. They ignore studies that don't demonstrate a relationship between uh, bundle compliance and, in fact, ignore those that demonstrate harm. The third is that surviving sepsis campaign claims to follow the GRADE methodology, but, in fact, their, method, their, their guidelines are in striking violation of GRADE methodology, which I'll come to. And then, lastly, I'll talk about the myths regarding bundles. So when we first look at the, 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 the relationship between association and outcome, you know, I'm now going to refer to the paper by Dr. Levy, which was published in 2015 in Critical Care Medicine, entitled Surviving Sepsis Campaign, Association Between Performance Metrics and Outcomes in a 7.5-Year Study. So basically, the the goal of the study was to look at compliance with the surviving sepsis bundles, which are based on the 2004 guidelines, and this was measured in a sample of 29,000 patients. And what the study concluded is that increased compliance with the bundle was associated with a 25% risk reduction in mortality. However, we then need to actually go to see the impact of each element of the bundle, and um, which I'll go through now, which they looked at. So the first one was measuring lactate. So the, just the act of measuring lactate was associated with a significant reduction in mortality, the p-value being 0.001. And as we know, just measuring lactate per se cannot possibly change outcome. The second one was performing blood cultures before antibiotics. And again, this was a highly significant reduction. And while I agree that optimal care does include blood cultures before antibiotics, it's kind of a false stretch that such an act would result in such a dramatic reduction in mortality, but rather taking blood cultures before antibiotics probably is a reflection of the clinicians or hospital providing better care. 
The third is broad-spectrum antibiotics. So this is not early antibiotics. This is just the administration of broad-spectrum antibiotics. And again, administration of broad-spectrum antibiotics was associated with a significant reduction in mortality. Again, the p-value being 0.001. Then we come to fluids and vasopressors. Again, highly significant. What becomes interesting is that the CBP above 8 and the mixed venous above 70, both of those independently and together were associated with a significant reduction in mortality. And we know from the three randomized controlled trials that achieving a mixed venous above 70 does not result in improvement of outcome. And in fact, achieving a CBP above 8 has been associated or directly causative of increased renal failure in multiple studies. So if you look at the six-hour bundle, each one of the elements independently appear to improve outcome, yet when they subjected to randomized controlled trials, they just, they just aren't supported. We then go to the 24-hour bundle, and we can see steroid policy, highly significant, and that is still a debatable issue. Recombinant uh, activated protein C almost reaches significant, 0.06, and we certainly know that that's not true. And most interesting, we look at glucose policy. So this is glycemic control, highly significant. Again, p-value of 0.001. And we know from nice sugar that, uh, in fact, attempts at glycemic control increase mortality. So. All the elements of the six-hour and 24-hour bundle in and of themselves have not been shown to improve outcome or don't improve outcome, and therefore it seems highly improbable that when you combine non-beneficial interventions that the outcome <coughs> should be beneficial. So this again reflects the fact of association and causation, and all of these studies are compounded by multiple different confounders. So the next question then goes to the brain well, evaluation. So let's pause for one second there, just so that we can get uh, a rebuttal to that, and then we'll come back sure. to, the, to the grade, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. Okay, Mitchell. Sure. Sure. Um, it's interesting. Um, I have to uh, laugh that Paul uh, talked about half-truths, because in reading uh, the uh, uh, point, uh, manuscript and, and the rebuttal, I, I feel like I'm dealing with a um, Trump-esque approach to the truth, which is uh, people can say things that uh, they know are untrue, and if you say it over and over again, you hope that people either won't notice that they're untrue or really won't care, and I feel a little bit uh, that's very much the argument that I just heard. I, let me say that um, the this is all about implementation science, and this is all about trying to do the right thing and facilitate transfer of research from the bench, from clinical trials, to the bedside more quickly. And we know from a lot of literature that it takes uh, an unreasonable, uh, unreasonably long period of time for knowledge to be translated from research to the bedside. And that's always been the intention of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. And uh, whether it's been the guidelines or the bundles, the hope and the intention was to take recent literature uh, that was shown to be safe, even if the results or needed to be repeated, but overall safety profile of the results were shown to be acceptable and implement them with the idea that if larger randomized controlled trials were shown, uh, demonstrated that the initial studies were in fact negative, which some of them were, uh, then we would change the bundles and the guidelines, and that's in fact what we've done. Uh, a couple of things to uh, point out. One, the, the assertion that these are not evidence-based and that they violate the grade, which is the gold standard for determining evidence-based guidelines, is very interesting since from the beginning, we have had grade advisors uh, as part of the guidelines process. And so to assert that it's a violation of grade, I'm sure that my grade advisors that have worked so diligently on every iteration of the guidelines would 
would smile at the idea that they're not compliant with grade because these are the great advisors who actually did it. And finally, I would say that um, the assertion uh, that lactate measurement, which we know identifies risk, and it, it may well be the only biomarker we currently have to assess risk, and we reiterated that in the recent definitions of sepsis 3, and blood cultures, which we know can direct therapy when they're positive, and finally, the administration of antibiotics um, uh, early, uh, certainly within six hours, those have been subjected to some trials, and the idea that there would be surprise that identifying risk early, that obtaining a blood culture to help guide therapy, and early appropriate antibiotic utilization would be a surprise to be associated with improved survival, I have to admit I'm kind of nonplussed and I don't know really how to answer that because I think most clinicians would feel very strongly as we have demonstrated in the literature that obtaining lactate, obtaining blood cultures, and then giving antibiotics are the mainstay of appropriate therapy in sepsis. Okay, so just a few, yeah, so first in terms of the lactate, I mean, I'm not going to dispute that lactate is a really good marker of severity of illness. The problem is, is that um, if a lactate is elevated, apart from giving thiamine, there are no known interventions that <coughs> can alter lactate. And the idea that it's due to an oxygen debt and to drive up oxygen delivery is clearly a myth. So it's a mark of illness severity as is white cell count. In terms of the grade, I'm going to read you a paper in 2018 called Above the Grade, Evaluation of Guidelines in Critical Care Medicine. So what they looked at was specifically all the guidelines published in critical care medicine. And what they said of 215 strong recommendations, 69, which is 32% were discordant with paired evidence other than high moderate. So 22 involved strong evidence in which the strong uh, recommendation in which the level of evidence was either expert opinion or a low severity. And they actually have a graph. So they have a table of evidence graph with quality of evidence and strength of recommendation. And they have a box of discordant, so therefore that strong recommendations are made based on either weak evidence or expert opinion. And in this box, the top left-hand corner, strikingly, the surviving sepsis campaign stands almost on its own in providing the most number of discordant recommendations, that is, making strong recommendations based on weak or expert opinion. And clearly that is, as evidenced in this paper, is, is discouraged by the grade uh, system and the grade committee. This is, this is figure one in the SIMS paper that's in critical care medicine? Yes. Okay. So, so, I mean, there's no question, if you look at all the other guidelines, that surviving sepsis stands alone uh, as being a complete outlier in providing significantly more guidelines which, which, are strong, which are strong recommendations based on expert opinion. And I think that's a dangerous position to be in because if there's, you know, if there's no evidence, there's no evidence. So how can you make a strong recommendation based on expert opinion? So, so that's the grade. So Mitch, Mitchell mentioned the antibiotics. So I, I'm not gonna disagree that the earlier you treat a patient, the earlier you give antibiotics, is, is, is not a bad thing. However, one has to look at the literature and uh, the data in terms of very strict guidelines just don't exist. So I'm going to read the title of a paper by Mervyn Singer, who I believe is on the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine which we acknowledge is a reputable journal. Antibiotics for sepsis, does each hour really count, or is it incestuous amplification? And he goes on to say, the strength of evidence for each hour delay is not particularly compelling. 
To my knowledge, every study supporting this dogma is based solely on retrospective analyses of databases, usually co collected for administrative or other reasons. And clearly we know that the Infectious Disease Society of America do not endorse the guidelines for these very reasons. And indeed, there is one study that I know of, which actually is a randomized study testing whether there's a difference in outcome between earlier antibiotics. And this was the study published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine in which patients with sepsis were randomized to, patients with presumed sepsis were randomized to antibiotics in the ambulance or antibiotics in the ED. And there was no difference in outcome in any group of patients. And what's even more striking, just to illustrate the problem of association and causation, I have a paper now from Pediatric Emergency Care published in 2008 called Timing of Antibiotic Administration in Pediatric Sepsis. And I'll read the conclusion. Children with criteria for sepsis who subsequently progressed to septic shock who received antibiotics within the first hour of meeting sepsis criteria had increased mortality, increased length of stay, and increased organ dysfunction. So, you know, this paper obviously goes against, you know, this notion of giving antibiotics in the first hour. And I think the problems with association, so clearly this, you know, they tried to severity adjust, I would suspect that the severity adjustment was imperfect. And I think the problem with all of these studies is that it's likely that sicker patients uh, get, are more difficult to treat and get antibiotics later. So it's a profound confounder. Okay. Great. Um, please. Uh, no, Mitchell, uh, please. Sure. Yeah. So uh, again, I, I feel like I'm, um, I feel like I'm in the current political environment and trying to answer tweets that are de deliberately misleading. Uh, first of all, uh, lactate-guided therapy. There are two randomized controlled trials uh, that Paul is well aware of that have been stated in the campaign guidelines that are the support for measuring lactate, uh, one, uh, one by Jan Bach and the other by Alan Jones. So clear, there's clear randomized controlled trial evidence that lactated guided therapies associated with improved survival. Second, um, it's interesting, the guidelines have become the gold standard um, internationally. And, um, Paul and his folks like to point out the one or two societies that come and go and support or don't support, but there are currently 35 international pulmonary critical care and infectious disease societies across the globe that have partnered to uh, support and produce the guidelines. Uh, the IDSA has signed on to, I believe, the 2012 and then signed off on 2016. The Australian New Zealand uh, Intensive Care Society also has come and gone, supported and then not supported. And so some of these societies, for different reasons, decide at different times whether they want to support it or not. And, and I, I respect their decision to not support it. But nonetheless, the guidelines have really become established as the gold standard. Now, uh, again, I will reiterate that um, the grade advisors are all from grade. Uh, Romanesky um, and, and others from grade have been the key advisors to helping us uh, make recommendations. And I think Paul's accurate. Uh, many of our recommendations in an attempt to help guide clinicians after answering the PICO questions and assessing the evidence have uh, made uh, recommendations that we hope will guide clinical practice and are extremely transparent about the level of evidence. So, so with the lack of transparency, we make recommendations and allow clinicians to decide for themselves whether they want to implement these recommendations or not implement. Um, and then the final kind of uh, untruth that was uh, put forward is the antibiotic data. So uh, many 
of the published studies are prospectively collected databases and uh, stated in advance that, in fact, antibiotic utilization would be studied as part of this prospective data collection. And the surviving sepsis campaign publications that we have in both critical care medicine, in the New England Journal of Medicine, which demonstrated increased mortality for every hour delay in uh, administration of antibiotics, um, is much more consistent with the published literature than uh, the few studies that don't demonstrate a relationship between timing of antibiotic therapy and outcomes. And uh, finally, I will say that uh, in JAMA, we published as part of the New York State database in children uh, that demonstrated that the children that received all elements of the sepsis bundle for children that included antibiotics within one hour had the highest rate of survival in, I believe it was 2,500 children that were studied over the course of the two years. And then the final thing I'll say is this idea of causation versus association. Now, there is no question, and again, we've been very transparent, as are many people, when they look at the uh, impact of implementing the surviving sepsis campaign bundles on outcomes in whether it's networks, or in the case of New York State, it's a statewide initiative or individual hospitals, that one in a prospective cohort, one could never apply causation. And that's, that's just simply true. And what we've done, however, is we've looked at, in addition to the relationship between outcome and compliance, in our data and in the New York State data, which, by the way, is 100,000 patients, we looked at dividing the compliance into quartiles, and that is looking at the change, the relationship in the lowest compliers versus the highest compliers, and the change in more, and outcomes. And we were able to demonstrate in a couple of studies that the hospitals with the highest compliance had actually an deeper decline in associated mortality than in hospitals with a worse, worse um, more poor compliance. So again, we could never claim causation, but one has to say that showing an overall relationship with compliance and then an added uh, strength of evidence that the higher the compliance, the better the survival, to me is really good support for the relationship between outcomes and compliance with the bundles. And the final thing I'll say is it's kind of ironic to me, me. To, hear, to hear Dr. Marek um, uh, cast aspersions about associations and outcomes of association rather than causation, because Dr. Marek has made such a, an enormous um, uh, splash about his use of vitamin C in a prospective cohort of about 100 patients that he published in chess. And in response to those 100 patient cohort, he claimed that it would be unethical to give vitamin C, to not give vitamin C based on 100 patients because of the association, association between improved outcomes and the use of vitamin C. So that irony doesn't escape me as we have this pro-con debate. Yeah, so, so that those facts aren't really true. So, um, so we can look about the vitamin C. So if you read the um, conclusion of the abstract, we said this is a preliminary study which requires further study. Uh, secondly, there are probably over 100 basic science studies which support the use of vitamin C. So this is not something just sucked up out of the air like many of the guidelines. This is based on mechanistic data and uh, strong um, strong data from uh, both, both experimental data as well as data from clinical studies. What I did say was that it would be difficult for me personally to enroll a patient in a study as I have lost clinical equipoids. However, what I have done is I've raised tens of millions of dollars so that we can in fact do a randomized controlled trial. So I think you, you're really misquoting me quite significantly. You know, I never said our data was sufficient in itself, but I said there's an enormous amount of basic science, over 100 basic science studies, enormous clinical data, and that this should serve as the starting point to do randomized controlled trials. So, you know, we can then, you know, the, 
The ma major concern that I have and my colleagues have with surviving sepsis is that um, it's based on low quality evidence. So if you're going to enforce, which has become the federal standard, if you're going to enforce clinicians to prescribe a specific therapy, it should be based on good data. And almost all the data, all, all the data in surviving sepsis is really observational and anecdotal. I don't think anyone would argue that giving antibiotics in a timely fashion is not a good thing. We would all agree with that. But fixed time intervals may be uh, clinically inappropriate and may have downstream effects in which patients who don't have sepsis or receive antibiotics, and we know that those patients are adversely affected. Um, well, I, I wanted to interject for a second. Um, I'm wondering out loud if the individual discussions aside of, of kind of the, the studies quoted, but if I'm hearing right, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, but Paul, the, the, the bigger issue seems to be, and I think Mitchell said this at the beginning, the, the sort of the implementation science behind this. It's the guidelines, if they existed as guidance, if you will, to then for the individual clinician to implement at their discretion and at their pace, um, as opposed to something that has more of a mandate feel to it, is that a lot of the core crux? Of, and then your argument being so, that because it's being mandated, if it's if it's mandated, then it better be the highest yes. quality data. So am I, I mean, am I paraphrasing? Am I paraphrasing that right? I mean, a guideline okay. is the guideline. It should provide guidance, which you accept or you don't accept based on the patient in front of you. But what's happened is the guideline has now been mandated by SEP1, which we have to which we cannot ignore, and, and SEP1 is the direct offshoot of the surviving sepsis campaign bundles. So this has created a situation which has forced physicians to provide care that they do not think is evidence-based, and in many instances in which they think may be harmful. And there's a paper just published this month in Critical Care Medicine. You know, the same journal that published the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, and I'll read you the title. Current sepsis mandates are overly prescriptive and some aspects may be harmful. Basically saying exactly what I've said is that they pressurize clinicians to provide aggressive, rapid, rigid, and reflexive care that may not be suitable for all patients. So the problem is the guideline is fine. You know, you can adopt it if you want to, or you can ignore it. But what's happened is it's become an all-or-none process in which, to meet the SEP1 mandate, you have to fulfill all elements of the bundle. And I think that's the biggest problem that people have. Great. So I think there's a couple of things that's really important to remember. First of all, the... Um, the, um, both the New York State uh, data, which is a mandated public reporting, so like SEP1, uh, it's uh, mandated and it's uh, public reporting. And here's a good example of uh, through mandated uh, compliance with the essentially the three and six hour bundle over a course of two years, there was a significant reduction in associated mortality of 15% relative risk reduction. So it reflects the fact that while everybody and people like uh, Paul are going, oh, this is terrible, the sky is falling and there's all this unintended consequences, almost every single study that's published have demonstrated improved survival associated with these bundles. In fact, there was a, a meta-analysis of 44 studies over the course of five years that demonstrated a clear, statistically significant point estimate favoring survival in implementing these bundles. So although a lot of the detractors of bundles and guidelines like to claim that there's all this terrible uh, negative uh, deleter unintended deleterious consequences, there's no evidence of it. And in fact, there's no published ev evidence of any deleterious effects associated with the surviving sepsis campaign bundles. So the only thing there is in the literature, and now the the literature is actually getting quite robust, being published in journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, 
JAMA, the American uh, Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. These are highly reputable journal, peer-reviewed journals, which are publishing the results of the data from the surviving sepsis campaign protocols, which are demonstra demonstrating improved survival. And the, and the only thing I'll say there that's really important is, as far as SEP1 goes, and, and this is true in New York State as well, if you look at the report cards, for New York State that the hospitals receive. And this is true for hospital-acquired infections uh, that are uh, mandated reporting uh, from CMS for hospitals across the United States. All of our performance, whether it's my hospital or Paul's or yours, um, are graded on a curve. That is, we look at the tw their 25th, 50th, and 75th percentiles. And where hospitals are dinged so to speak, in a pay performance for, for, for performance scheme, is compared to each other, when we fall below the 25th percentile, that's when we have to start looking at ourselves and saying, why is it compared to all the other hospitals in the United States or all the other hospitals in New York State, are we falling below the 25th percentile? Compliance is never 100%. Therefore, there are a lot of clinicians who do, just as Paul suggested, when they decide my patient should not be given fluid or I want to wait to give this patient, clinicians trust themselves enough and that's why there's not 100% compliance. And in the long run, that comes out in the wash. So being held accountable and then being compared to like hospitals is the appropriate way to go so that we do the right thing by patients. But I mean, I would argue that doing the right thing by patients is individualized, high level, high quality evidence-based medicine. I mean, and there really just doesn't, that level of evidence just doesn't exist. Now, you mentioned that all studies have shown a positive outcome. So if you look at early goal-directed therapy, all the observational studies, the meta-analysis were positive, and then when they were subjected to a randomized controlled trial, three studies were negative. So I have a paper here, another one, Critical Care Medicine 2015. This is a randomized controlled trial, an electronic tool for the evaluation and treatment of sepsis in an ICU. So this is from Vanderbilt in which they randomized patients to either a standard of care or an aggressive implementation for both screening and treatment of sepsis and basically a comprehensive electronic sepsis evaluation and management tool is feasible but it did not influence guideline compliance or clinical outcome. In fact, a meta-analysis in the Journal of Hospital Medicine, basically automated sepsis alerts and early implementation of sepsis bundles do not improve outcomes. So I have a study just published in the Journal of Health Quality, multidisciplinary approach to improve sepsis outcome. And again, the bottom line is after implementation, we noted a timely and appropriately timed lactate 88 versus 70%, with no improvement in bulk blood cultures, antibiotics, or any outcome measure. So there are trials which don't show an improvement. And in fact, the paper by Dr. Khalil, again in critical care medicine, showed that, and I'm going to read, early goal-directed therapy was associated with increased mortality. Let me say that again. Early goal-directed therapy was associated with increased mortality in patients with high severity. And we know from the Kaiser experience published in American Journal of Emergency Medicine, the universal application of the surviving sepsis campaign guideline at that time was actually associated with a dramatic increase in the number of patients who were treated for sepsis, but a dramatic increase in the number of patients who died from sepsis because patients were inappropriately being managed with central lines and blood and all other kinds of things. So the, the literature goes, swings both ways. And in fact, if you look at SEP1 data, so this is a paper again in critical care medicine, compliance with the national SEP1 quality measures showed that there was, and I'll read, this association was no longer significant after adjusting for differences in clinical characteristics 
and severity of illness. So again, there's a lot of data suggesting that if you correct for severity of illness, in fact, these guidelines do not improve outcome. And we know from the Kaiser experience that it actually likely increased mortality. So the, the, the universal dogma that surviving sepsis campaign reduces mortality, I believe, is completely false. It's interesting. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you're quoting Kaiser Permanente, and yet uh, there are multiple manuscripts from Vinnie Lou and Alan Whippy that have, uh, over the years, demonstrated uh, early, uh, early identification and early application of the sepsis bundles were associated with improved survival. And, and I think it's interesting. Uh, so, Paul, I, I appreciate the question about uh, association and causation. I understand that. But surely you can't be thinking that the weight of the published data using sepsis bundles does not favor improved survival. You're, you're quoting a couple of papers here and there, but I don't think any clinician who's read the literature would seriously try to say that the weight of the published data do not favor improved survival associated with the bundles. I mean, once we begin to try to assert that, we really are trying to twist the truth. So, I mean, my question is really, so, you know, what, what element of the bundle actually improves the outcome? So, you know, I, I think few people would argue that giving antibiotics in a timely manner is a good thing. I think the data for measuring lactate is non-existent. The data for giving 30 moles per kilo is actually non-existent and probably harmful. And in fact, what's interesting is that where the 30 moles per kilo came from, and in fact, there's no, there's no data or, or study to support this. And so I actually did a survey of every single person on the surviving sepsis campaign committee, whether they agreed or disagreed with the recommendation. The first interesting thing is, according to senior members of the, of the campaign, that this, this recommendation was actually not voted on. Somehow it was just put into the guideline. And in terms of the respondents, overwhelmingly most of the respondents on a basis of 62% to 33% did not agree with the 30 mole per kilogram recommendation, which is a strong recommendation. And in fact, there is a fair amount of supporting data that they, this may be harmful. And that there are a whole bunch of studies looking at a fluid restrictive strategy, which have shown, in fact, equal or better outcomes than, than um, the 30 mole per kilo, and obviously it forms the basis for the Clovis trial. The Clovis trial wouldn't have uh, been approved and got federal funding if there was if there were, if there wasn't clinical equipoise with response in response to giving. I'm glad you brought up fluid. I, I, I welcome the opportunity. I think it's uh, you've mentioned several times the multiple randomized controlled trials and early goal directed therapy that were in fact negative. And I think it's really important to note, and we do this in the rationale in the m most recent iteration of the guidelines in 2016, that the median amount of fluid that was received by patients in process, promise, and arise, so the U.S., the UK and Australia, New Zealand, the median amount of fluid received by these patients prior to randomization. Let me say that again. Prior to randomization was 30 cc's per kilogram, and in fact, and in fact, the um, in in Australia, New Zealand, the amount prior to uh, randomization was 35 cc's per kilogram. It's it's those three randomized controlled trials that we actually use as part of the evidence for reasserting the recommendation of 30 cc's per kilogram. And as far as clovers, I welcome the opportunity. We, in fact, did also a trial, uh, a, a randomized controlled trial, small single center trial here at Brown looking at restricted fluids. Now, we looked at uh, after the first 30 cc's per kilogram, we looked at limiting the subsequent fluid to only an additional 30 cc's versus usual care, and in fact, 
found no difference. So I think the key in terms of fluids is after initial resuscitation with two liters to limit fluids because of the potential harmful effect of fluids. And I believe that we conflate the concern about fluids from separating the initial resuscitation from the subsequent uh, resuscitation. So, you know, there are a number of studies that limit fluid from the gecko. So, Clovis is one. Uh, Refresh is another study published in Intensive Care Medicine, which is another. So, what was interesting in Refresh is that the amount of fluid given in the first six hours was 2.3 liters as opposed to the three liters um, uh, in the other group. And what was fascinating, which has been supported by study over study, is that the more fluid you give, the, the higher the vasopressor requirement and the longer the vaso use of vasopressors. Um, Dr. Simpson, who I believe is also a um, member of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, did, did a study called Stroke Volume Guided Resuscitation in Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock Improves Outcome. Um, and the, the, the results were quite striking. So the amount of fluid was significantly less in the fluid restrictive group. They, they had a significantly lower risk of mortality, significantly shorter duration of vasopressors, and less renal failure. So I think that you know, where this 30 cc's comes from, you know, this was, you know, data from prowess and process that wasn't designed that way. It was cumulative fluid. It wasn't given as a bolus. So that's not what they did in the study. So this seems to be contrived from somewhere and really does not have a strong scientific basis. As far as fluids go, I've made my point. I don't see any reason to keep going on about this. Um, I think, uh, as I said, I think it's really important, despite the um, uh, concerns that have been expressed about clovers, to move forward with clovers because I think it'll answer a very important question. And I'm sure, Paul, you didn't mean to imply that there were, first of all, as we know, Clovers is just getting started, so there are no data. And second, I, I know you didn't mean to imply that the refresh trial demonstrated any difference between those two groups. No, it was a small, it was a small uh, pilot study, but what, exactly. it did show, but what it did show was a significant reduction in vasopressor support, that was, which, was, which was intriguing. And there are other studies which support this uh, paper in, again, the American Journal of respiratory and critical care medicine, unintended consequences, third resuscitation worsens shock in an ovine model of endotoxemia, which really uh, explains why patients in the feast study did worse with fluid boluses. So, you know, this large volume fluid resuscitation really has very little supporting evidence. Yeah, once again, you're, you're conflating. You, you, this is a little bit like fear-mongering, Paul. I mean, you're, you're, you're conflating a massive amounts of fluid. There's no question that retrospective studies demonstrate that the higher the uh, fluid balance over the course of a, a hospitalization is associated with worsening uh, survival. Absolutely. I'm trying to keep focused on what our recommendation is, which is 30 cc's in, in uh, hypotensive patients in the first couple of hours which is about two liters in a 70 kilogram person. Sometimes I, I have this feeling that when people raise the fear of 30 cc's per kilogram, it sounds like we're talking about five liters and six liters when actually it's really two liters. And I, I believe that most of us, uh, first of all, almost all the intensivists I know, at least in the United States, by the time I get these patients, I've, they've long, they've, they've received at least two or three liters. So I'm never the one that gives them the 30 cc's. It's really an emergency department question more than an intensive care unit question. I, I want to, we've been, we've been talking for a while and I want to be respectful of both of your time and I want to be respectful of our listeners' time. And, and I, this has been, as, as expected, a fantastic debate back and forth. And I don't think we're going to reach conclusion uh, <laughs> between the two of you. Um, but, but I 
wanted to, so in, 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 in kind of more of the spirit of time for everybody, and, and obviously the two of you are extremely busy, um, kind of some final thoughts or other key points you want to make or to, to reiterate, and then I think we'll work on wrapping it up. So, you know, my major issue and my major point is that I think clinical practice should be guided by strong evidence and that when there's strong evidence, then I think it's okay to mandate or encourage people to do it. I think the lack of evidence should result in the lack of strong recommendations because we've forgotten that the clinicians at the bedside who are looking after the patient and they obviously have clinical expertise and can judge what's best for their patient. And I would say, I would say uh, two things. One, uh, I'm enormously proud of the work that we've done in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. I believe over the last 16 years, we, we put sepsis on the map, so to speak. Uh, I believe in our data that demonstrate across a, a number of different venues uh, that the use of the sepsis bundles uh, Im, improve or associated with improved survival. And I think more importantly, I, I, and I, we ended both our uh, counterpoint piece and our rebuttal that I think most of us would really want our loved ones to be cared for in institutions that can consistently and reliably meet the evolving performance metrics. There is no precision medicine right now for determining how much fluid to give patients. And so it's better, in my mind, to have a minimum, minimum standard of care that's been associated with improved survival than to just tell clinicians, do whatever you want. And so I, I stand by these guidelines because I think they're the right thing to do for patients. Terrific. I'm going to make one last plug also. Um, you know, so obviously for our listeners, you heard a great debate, um, and these are obviously an expansion upon the articles, the point counterpoints that are published in CHEST. So without a doubt, uh, grab your journal and go. And then um, into reference to other podcasts that we've done that are on similar topics, uh, the June 2017 podcast, which obviously you can download and listen to, focused on um, a study that was discussed about in regards to Dr. Merrick's uh, hydrocortisone vitamin C and thymine study. Um, and then also the 2000, May 2016 podcast where we talked about uh, the sepsis three uh, guideline or definitions and the um, discussion and editorial comment uh, in regards to that. Though that was obviously published in a different journal, um, we discussed it here during our podcast as well. So just for our listeners to further expand upon. Um, but gentlemen, uh, this was uh, a great discussion. I think a nice, lively debate, and, and I really appreciate the time from both of you. I know our listeners are uh, going to be uh, chomping at the bit to have great discussions, which I think is the key of these whole point counterpoints to begin with. So, uh, Dr. Mary. Uh, Dr. Levy, thank you so much for your time. Sure. Thanks so thank much. Thank you, Kyle.